As I was preparing today's homily, I thought it was something of a shame that the gospel is not uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you recall that parable, the owner of the vineyard goes out at the 11th hour of the day, and he finds a bunch of men idly standing around, and so he invites them to work and then rewards them with a full day's pay to the discomfort of the other workers. It's from this parable that we get the term the 11th hour. And it's possible that the Allied and German military leaders had this parable in mind when 100 years ago today they agreed to the armistice that ended the calamity of World War I. And they did so at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. This was the war to end all wars, but we know of course, in hindsight, that it was no such thing, and in fact spawned a century of death and destruction on a scale previously unknown. The Treaty of Versailles that followed this armistice contributed to, among other things, the Great Depression and the even more calamitous Second World War. The 20th century was one long parable on the futility of man's efforts to secure peace by the mobilization of manpower. Contrast this with God's typical modus operandi, which does not lend itself to credit and debit ledgers. I mentioned today's non-gospel already, in which workers who labored only an hour received the same wages as those who worked all day. So this isn't good bookkeeping on, on the part of the owner of the vineyard. Unsurprisingly, those who put in the whole day of work were uh, not particularly overjoyed by the generosity shown by the vineyard owner. And in today's gospel, we have a similar situation, the real gospel now. Jesus praises the widow, even though her net contribution to the temple collection is, by man's standards, negligible, next to the major benefactors to the temple. One can imagine that the temple authorities, whose job it was to count the money and make uh, expenditures of it to keep the temple up, contribute to the sacrifices and so on, uh, that they made it a point to praise and cultivate their major benefactors. And this is a right thing to do. It's a just thing to do on their part. It's no problem. But it's easy in those circumstances to overlook the spiritual efficacy of the widow's commitment And her commitment echoes something of God's hiddenness in the way God is a benefactor to us. And the danger that we must confront each day is that a tendency to get caught up in the uh, double-entry, zero-sum game of earthly material wealth uh, can be spiritually deadening. And what do I mean by this, though? Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be generous or we shouldn't make a distinction between major benefactors and others. It's just that any attempt to measure God's grace and the things of God generally by any material standard is foolhardy. It's, it's apples and oranges, as they say. Because the power that created the universe is not a power that can be measured by anything within that universe. So spiritual things must be assessed by spiritual standards, by spiritual means. The unspiritual man, says St. Paul, does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. 
The spiritual man, on the other hand, judges all things, has the right measure of understanding. So our Lord is speaking as a spiritual man when he praises the gift of the widow. She excels not in the magnitude of a measurable gift, but by a spiritual magnitude of her faith, which resembles Abraham's faith, actually. In the letter to the Hebrews, we read that Abraham, by his faith, was willing to offer up Isaac. And he did this because he believed, the author tells us, that God was able to raise from the dead so he could even give his only son to God. And so the widow gives everything she has because behind that gift she believes that God will supply. And Elijah tells the widow, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to give everything. God can make a miracle happen if he wants to. When we make this act of faith, we open ourselves to being influenced by God's Spirit. We open the eyes of our souls to see how God is supplying us with what we need. We, we become aware that we're being supplied. We don't supply ourselves, as we often like to think of it. Uh, it doesn't mean we, we don't have to cooperate with God's help to supply for our needs. But in the end, it's up to God. So we become accustomed to relying on a power that is greater than ours, that's a power greater than any power. And it's instructive to examine why we need to do this. Uh, it might seem very simple to rely on God's power. Why do we have to make an act of faith in this case? One of the arguments against God, made either by atheists or perhaps by those who just don't much like God, is that if he exists and he's all-powerful, he should do something about the evil in the world. He should do something about poverty, right? If he really cares about this widow, shouldn't she not have to go about in penury? This is, of course, again, to think in terms of material things, to think in terms of this world's measurable goods. Uh, God can. He can create anything he wants out of nothing. He can work miracles anytime he decides to. That's up to him. That he chooses not to, under most circumstances, is not out of any weakness or out of inattentiveness to what's happening in our lives. Rather, uh, it's important to look at the regularity of things. He gives us the laws of nature, conservation of matter and energy. Matter doesn't just pop into existence all the time. Why is that? Well, among other things, it allows us to rely on his fidelity. He keeps these things working regularly. Right? If God stopped caring about the laws of nature, they would just cease to work. Also, uh, he gives us this regularity so that we can learn how to cooperate with his governance of the world. We can learn how to uh, build buildings and uh, we can understand how to build load-bearing structures that hold up a church for 110 years. We can apply these laws because we know that they're good. God stands behind them because he's uh, faithful to his covenant. God is not a tyrant. He's not an over-functioning codependent. He's not intervening all the time because we can't help ourselves. So God generally doesn't pull rank by miraculous interventions at random. 
And I call them random because uh, even if we ask for them, you know, because we can ask God for miracles, he may say, no, not right now, I'm not going to do that. Uh, But the reason I call these interventions random is because once we decide that God should intervene to stop this evil or that evil, why why stop there? Why shouldn't God intervene over here as well? Uh, So any time we ask God to intervene, there's some randomness to it. There's some personal and limited perspective that we bring to it. We want this done because that's what I happen to see, but I don't see the big picture of the whole cosmos, heaven and earth as well. So expecting to work miracles on my terms is to ask God to habituate himself to my limited sort of material point of view. And this comes about when, like the scribes, uh, I become happy to measure my own success by typical material standards. So again, there's a real danger in our world where we do tend to measure success according to ledgers and spreadsheets and so on. And as I said, within the proper place, that's not wrong. But if that becomes the governing metaphor by which I measure my relationship with God, I'm in trouble. So when it comes to the things of God, it's important that instead of asking God to think like me, that I ask, how do I become the sort of person who thinks like God thinks? The widow in this is our model, she who gave her entire livelihood. The word for livelihood in Greek in this passage, by the way, is bios, that word from which we get biology, the study of life. She gives her whole life to God. So this widow has indeed become like God because in her act of faith, she has become like God's trusting son.